This week on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. The most important seed of consciousness that I think we're planting in the urban agriculture movement is that we have the ability and the right and the responsibility to begin to shape our own reality. I'm Neil Harvey. Please join us for Shape-Shifting Detroit, Overcoming Drive-By Economics on The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. As Ernest Hemingway wrote, the world breaks everyone, but some people become strong in the broken places. Despite its media-fueled image as the poster child of urban decay, the citizens of Detroit are working hard to become strong in the broken places. As a company town in an industrial monoculture, Detroit crumbled with the shakeout of the auto industry in the 1970s. Like other U.S. cities in the manufacturing rust belt, as multinational corporations offshored jobs, Detroit experienced massive unemployment and depopulation. Urban infrastructures and tax bases collapsed. A drive-by economy left the city as just one more hit-and-run casualty, leading to disinvestment in infrastructure, education, technology, and environmental protection. But many Detroiters are now challenging the failed policies that have favored corporate profits over the well-being of the city's residents. After struggling for decades to share in the prosperity and participate in decision-making, they are changing the terms of engagement. This is Shape-Shifting Detroit, Overcoming Drive-By Economics with Malik Kenyatta-Yakini, Lottie Spady, and Gloria Rivera. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Detroit achieved prominence in the 20th century as an industrial powerhouse, being the center of automobile manufacturing for the world. And so we had a huge migration of people from the South to Detroit beginning in the 1920s and continuing through the 1950s, primarily spurred by the auto industry. Malik Kenyatta Yakini is the founder and executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. He's lived in Detroit all his life and watched the city transform. And so we had huge numbers of African Americans escaping the brutality and the Jim Crow laws of the South and also seeking a better quality of life, lured by the promise of earning $5 a day in the Ford Motor Company factories. And we also had poor whites who were coming up from the South for the same reason, to work in the auto factories. Then also we had a very vibrant civil sector. In the case of African Americans in particular, they were able to get jobs with various local or federal governmental agencies. And so we developed very stable working-class communities, often those communities were ethnically specific, which were in many ways self-reliant, where you had, you know, the baker and the butcher and the flower shop and the barber and kind of all of those things right in a community. And of course, a lot of that was forced because of segregation. African-Americans were forced to live in particular neighborhoods. Beginning in the late 1950s, with the development of the freeway system, and the intentional development of a ring of suburbs surrounding Detroit, we began to see the movement of people from the city into these suburbs and also the movement of capital from the core city into the suburbs. 
And again, the freeway systems were created to intentionally do this. This isn't something that just happened by happenstance. And then also, the freeways in Detroit, as in many other areas, ran through sometimes what were the most vibrant black business districts, decimating those localized economies. And so the combination of the decimation of those localized black economies and the hard-fought battles to end segregation and to remove the restrictive covenants that prohibited African Americans from moving into various neighborhoods, and then the opening up of suburban malls, all of those things kind of conspired to further divest capital from the core city and move it more into the suburbs of Detroit. The toxic mix of disinvestment and racism finally exploded in 1967. The media called it a riot. Detroiters called it a rebellion. Lottie Spady grew up in the area where the rebellion would take place. She's a member of the collaborative group Detroit Food Justice Task Force. I became aware of this systemic disinvestment in Detroit, the dismantling of the education system, the lack of attention and resources given to a public transportation system, the inability of housing, quality reasonable housing to be found. Businesses continue to move, the major grocery store chain moved. Everything that a city needs in order to be self-sustaining and sufficient began to migrate away from the city. This brought the property values down and positioned it well for the phase in which we found ourselves. Now, a lot of the things you'll hear want to start the narrative around black governance and that that was the downfall of Detroit, that you have a city that was left in the hands of black government, given that opportunity, this is what happened. They don't talk about the preceding four mayors that were white, that had a lot to do with everything from the KKK to tax evasion to all kinds of you know trickery, things that go on in politics in general. That part of the narrative is left out. When Coleman Young was elected as the first African-American mayor in Detroit in 1972, he inherited the historical burden of the preceding decades, the largely white leadership's systematic disinvestment in the city. The polarization sharpened between the mostly African-American administration and the wealthy white suburbs. Since Young's tenure, most elected officials have been African-American. So even though Detroit's problems are the direct result of disinvestment and a shifting globalized economy, in 2013, Michigan's governor appointed an emergency manager and stripped power from elected officials in Detroit and four other cities with black leadership, comprising half the state's population. These unelected officials were given full control to slash budgets and make structural changes without democratic accountability. It's disenfranchisement on steroids and a massive transfer of public resources to the wealthy. Malik Yakini sees an all-too-familiar pattern. In my estimation, what we see happening now in Detroit, in some ways, is black Detroit being spanked for having the audacity to try to take state power and to try to exercise self-determination, much in the same way as the nation of Haiti continues to be spanked for having the audacity to have had the first revolution in the Western Hemisphere. And so I think what we're seeing play out now is a combination of racism and classism in the city of Detroit. Buy when there's blood in the streets, as the 19th century banker Baron Rothschild was reputed to say. 
Detroiters believe the so-called emergency solutions being put on the table are designed for buyers who benefit from blood in the streets, selling off major plots of land and public goods at fire sale prices. Catholic nun Gloria Rivera of the Sisters, Servants of the Immaculate Heart of Mary Order, grew up in Mexico City, where her father worked with the poor. She developed a deep commitment to social justice. She co-founded Great Lakes Bioneers Detroit, which directs Bioneers network initiatives in the area. When she moved to Detroit in 1994, she found a failed economic model that has been steadily foreclosing the future for the vast majority of the city's residents. You have all of the desire to bring in businesses and to create new jobs from that perspective and perhaps through technology and innovation and all of that. And so that is attracting new people that coming to Detroit and a lot of people coming to buy land in Detroit or younger people moving into the, it's now called Midtown, which is a pretty gentrified area of the city. But it's the same capitalistic mode of operating. So it's the system that, in my opinion, no longer works. At the same time, the city is giving fire sale perks to sports arenas, casinos, and wealthy developers, Gloria Rivera also sees a new system being born. For 20 years, she's worked with the people who never gave up on the city, including Lottie Spady and Malik Yakini. Food is at the heart of their efforts to create community resilience. Detroit has one of the most robust urban agricultural movements in the country and a proud tradition of urban agriculture. As many African-Americans migrated from the rural South, in the 1890s, Mayor Hazen Pingree, nicknamed Potato Patch, convinced wealthy landowners to allow the unemployed to grow food on part of their land. During World War II, victory gardens were widespread. Under Coleman Young, the Farm Allot program provided city support with tractors, seeds, and plants to grow food in vacant lots. Now today, over 1,400 community and school gardens are flourishing. And by the way, the entire city has only one major supermarket, the result of disinvestment on a starvation diet. Malik Yakini is the co-founder of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, which he sees as a movement for food sovereignty. One of my teachers and comrades, Raj Patel, says that you can have food security in prison. So food security really just speaks to having adequate amounts of culturally appropriate food. So what we're talking about is much broader than that. We're really talking about shaping a food system that we have control over and that functions in our best interest. And an important part of food sovereignty is food justice. I work along with Malik and a number of community members in the Detroit Food Justice Task Force, looking at the entire food system to the workers that were involved in the harvesting and the growing of the food, the transportation systems by which they come to us, the advertising that makes sure that some communities feel that their easiest choices are those that contribute mostly to their own demise, like the fast food that is in every urban area, having people learn how to deconstruct food media and understand how that shapes our attitudes, values, and beliefs around food. An important part of that also building on what Lottie was saying in terms of where we go in Detroit to get our food. Mm -hmm. You know, first of all, public transportation was intentionally underdeveloped in Detroit because Detroit is, of course, the auto capital of the world, or it was 
So if you don't own an automobile, you're subject to the bus system, which the buses may come, they may not come, you may have to stand there for an hour or longer. And so for those who don't have autos, the choices about where to obtain healthy food are severely limited. So we have a number of Detroiters obtaining food from what we in Detroit call party stores or convenience stores or even worse, gas stations. And most of those so-called foods are packaged foods that are full of preservatives and full of artificial colorings and have just a devastating impact on health. The Detroit Food Justice Task Force is working to improve access to healthy foods. As a member, Gloria Rivera has helped create a program called Cook, Eat, Talk. Members visit neighborhoods, invite people to meals cooked with locally grown food, demonstrate recipes, and spark conversations about local food issues. So it was like an analysis of what are the sources of food in your community, and for the most part, there weren't good ones. Where can you find better food? And so it gave us an opportunity if somebody wanted to start a garden or if somebody, there was a farmer's market, but people were not aware of it. So it brought the neighbors together to talk about the issues, but also the solutions as realistic as possible because we were not going to create something overnight. And then over the, the dinner, we continued to talk about the systemic parts of it. Why is it that Detroit doesn't have any food chains, that all of them have left. As a person in this community, you have a right to access to good food. That is a human right. So what can we do about it? One of the group's actions focuses on improving the quality of food local stores carry. We gave everybody a questionnaire, a survey. If they wanted to, could go to their grocery store and just fill out what they saw. So is the meat, does it look green instead of red? And what is the produce like? And what are the prices? And what are the expirations? So they just take a one-page survey, and all they needed to do is write the name of the grocery store and the address, and the people from the other organization would follow up with the manager so that they didn't get caught because this is the place where they buy. So you didn't want them to get abused by a manager or something worse. So that is a tool for resilience and empowerment. We're also holding classes all the time for community members at free or little charge around canning, drying, how to make your own medicinal herbs, how to make your own deodorant, how to make, I mean, just the real basic essentials that we can always spin into a business, but we can trade amongst ourselves. You know, those type of low-tech survival skills that are necessary. and. We're doing that work with children so that there's a time when they're not able to remember when we were not self-sufficient. They're growing up seeing their parents and elders and sisters, you know, actually making and doing these things. And we're having them get their hands in the dirt early and seeing what is produced at their fingertips. Like, I did that. I made that happen. So that's one of the big visions, I think, that we're working for is this revaluing of the kinds of work we do and the effort it produces in such a way that it's not commodified, but it is truly a way of life. Not only are people doing gardening and planting seeds, but they're also planting seeds of consciousness. And the most important seed of consciousness that I think we're planting in the urban agriculture movement is that we are fully human, and as full human beings, we have the ability and the right and the responsibility to begin to shape our own reality. 
planting seeds of consciousness, harvesting people's agency to shape their own realities. More when we return. This is Shape-Shifting Detroit, Overcoming Drive-By Economics. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. To explore more Bioneers radio shows and video programming, please visit Bioneers.org. When Whole Foods decided to open up shop in Detroit as the only large supermarket in town, the Detroit Food Justice Task Force got involved to ensure the move benefited the local community. Sister Gloria Rivera saw an opportunity to change the paradigm. And we decided that this is a corporation moving in. They got all the green lights from the entity that facilitates all businesses coming into Detroit, and they're getting tax credits. That money is public money, and it's part of my taxes and your taxes. So we thought we have a right to get involved with this organization coming in, in this case Whole Foods. And so we met with them throughout the process of the store being built We had influence and conversations about were they hiring, even for the building of the store, were they hiring Detroiters, you know, the trades that they needed, were they from Detroit, assuming there would be somebody skilled to do that, and we had that. We asked about when they sourced the store, were they going to get local growers to provide the produce and other locally prepared foods. The actual hiring of staff for the store, we insisted that And they agreed that they would be predominantly people from Detroit. So it was a great experience in terms of calling a corporation to accountability in how do they come into a city and how they affect, just by their presence, what happens in that city. Gloria Rivera and other Detroit organizers emphasized community benefit as their guiding principle. They approached the city to adopt it as policy, for food as well as housing and other needs. We created a toolkit that we can share with other communities where this kind of a business is moving in so they have a say from the very beginning. And what we hope to have is a community benefits agreement, which would be a document that, of course, is not legal, but it's just in goodwill with the organization or the corporation that they realize that in exchange for all these public dollars that they have and no taxes for so many years, they're going to provide the following things. So it's letting people know they don't have to just sit back and take it. You know, It's far from being perfect, and we're not looking for perfection, but we're trying to set up a new paradigm, creating a sustainable community based on a revolution from the heart of nature. So that's what we're doing. Changing the paradigm also means challenging the corporate media's crisis story of saving Detroit by gentrifying, i.e. sweeping away the poor. 
Lottie Spady directs a community-based environmental justice media program called ReMedia. It provides community members with the skills and tools to create an accurate narrative about what's happening in Detroit. One effort that I'm involved in right now is around challenging our food media diet. We're asking parents to come together and deconstruct food media and really understand how advertising targets our children as young as two years old to become brand loyal so that that's the way their mind works from there on out is that they're always looking for a brand to buy as opposed to broccoli doesn't have a brand you know what I mean so they're looking for that we're also teaching them how to make their own media and we're making a healthy food campaign featuring young Detroit children doing healthy things, eating healthy food with a simple message that I have a right to a healthy food system and I have a right to know what's in my food. So I think that right now, given our ability to be global publishers at the push of a button, is something that can really challenge this existing narrative around food. Planting seeds of consciousness, reclaiming the power of agency, Reviving democracy from its coma. These are the bywords of this convergence of movements. Their vision is one city, not the tale of two cities, of have-nots and have-a-lots. A vision of newcomers who engage respectfully with those who have endured the fire and ice of disinvestment and racism. A vision of allies who want to lift the whole community. The places where the urban gardens have already happened, you already have the community. And so that's a great fertile soil, if I may use that <laughs> reference, that where people know the power of community and can claim the power that is theirs. Maybe it was taken away or it was given away, but we can reclaim that. And so that's where the hope and maybe it will be this generation setting it forth for the young generation because we're involving the youth so that they are aware of this is how it works. This is how democracy should work. In Detroit, we have a tremendous opportunity to really rethink the relationship between cities and green spaces. Uh, most cities don't have the amount of vacant land that we have in Detroit. Sometimes I say vacant land, but my friend Patrick Crouch with Earthworks Urban Farm corrects me because he says it is really not vacant because we have pheasants and all kind of animals who are moving in and creating these rich ecosystems. But it's land that is not being used by human beings. And so we have the ability to really now rethink the relationship between green spaces in the city because we know that both children and adults are healthier in all ways, mentally, spiritually, and physically, when they have exposure to the outdoors and when that's incorporated into their daily lives. So that would be another aspect of what we want to see. We want to see also, I think, rich, vibrant, localized economies. You know, we don't want to see extractive economies where people manufacture things outside of our neighborhoods and come in and view us only as a market. You know, it, to the extent that we're able to produce things for ourselves and sell those among ourselves and circulate money in our community, we want as much as possible to have local control over the goods that we consume and to circulate the profits from those goods among the people. So many of us are leaning towards this idea of cooperatively owned businesses as well, both consumer co-ops and also worker-owned co-ops, again, as a way of kind of creating justice and equity. So there's just so many things that are happening that's bubbling up from the grassroots level that we really don't hear about, but we think in many ways that Detroit is uh, a model for not only the United States, but a model for people around the world 
because as Detroit has experienced a decline, we're going to see the same thing in other parts of the world. And so as we respond to this decline and we affirm our own humanity and we advance a vision for the future, people are looking at us because we're creating a template for what they possibly can do as well. The universe is seamless. So can we move in our life towards that sense of common origin and connectedness, but without losing our individuality? The universe is emerging. So it's forever ongoing. It's creative. So can we just say, well, the system that we have now is really not functioning. Can we look at it with such detachment that, yeah, when I said this system was to work well, maybe it did, but now I know it doesn't. Maybe we need something else. And we is a we. We need to find it together. So those are some ways that I think might help us if we think from that perspective of the universe. Gloria Rivera, Malik Kenyatta Yakini, and Lottie Spady. Shape-shifting Detroit, overcoming drive-by economics. You can hear more from Sister Gloria Rivera, explore more Bioneers radio shows and video programming online at Bioneers.org. For information on attending the National Bioneers Conference and Bioneers events in your area, please visit Bioneers.org or call 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Rykodisc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at SoundsTrue.com. For more music information, please visit radio.bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Bioneers and Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life each other, and future generations. This is program number 0614. This program was made possible in part by Organic Valley, pasture-raised organic dairy products bringing the good from our family to yours. Visit organicvalley.coop. Mary's Gone Crackers, Healing the planet through conscious eating. Gluten-free and vegan products since 2004. Learn more at marysgonecrackers.com. John Masters Organics. Feel good about looking good. Visit johnmasters.com. Funding also provided by a grant from the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues, and by the generous support of listeners like you.